Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to season two of the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox. Because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur, we all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. And I have a few colleagues and connections on LinkedIn reach out and recommend the guests that I have today. And I graciously reached out to Ron and he said he'd be on the show. So let me give you a little brief introduction to Ron Carucci. He has a 30-year track record of helping executives tackle those challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership. He works from startups to Fortune 10s, nonprofits to head of states, turnarounds to new market and strategies, overhauling leadership, and cultural redesign for growth. Ron's experience spans more than 25 countries on four continents, and he has helped organizations articulate strategies that lead to accelerated growth. And then he helps design the programs to execute those strategies. So I could go on and on telling you how wonderful Ron is, but I want to dive into a great conversation. So Ron, welcome to the show. Hey, Deb, how are you? Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I'm delighted. I know you've had a busy, busy year with lots of things going on. So thank you for allowing me some time to to share your brilliance with with my audience. I have a typical four questions, but when I was doing my research, I I had to slip in, in two more short ones. So I'm looking forward to a great conversation with you. So if you're ready, I'm ready to ask your questions. Let's dive in. So Ron, do you feel that leaders should have a model of organizational design? And I know that's a really big question, but when I look at who you are and I look at your business, which we'll talk about in a minute, that was kind of the first question that came to mind. And I just wanted to know if you could kind of unpack that a little bit. I know it's a big question. Sure, it's a, but it's a great question, Deb, because most leaders don't think of themselves as organization architects, right? They think of themselves as cost cutters or strategy developers or people who drive performance, but most leaders fail to realize that what's sort of hiding in plain sight is the only competitive advantage they have is how they configure their assets of their organization, how they put the pieces together. And most of them think that's about nip and tucking the org- nipping and tucking the org chart, you know, slice here, cut there, bolt on here. And of course, then they make their organizations look like those people who've had way too much cosmetic surgery and their faces all stretched out. And rather than thinking holistically about how the work, work is different from each other and what, what types of work should be grouped together, so I would, I would love for leaders to, A, understand organizations as systems, not just hierarchies, and for them to understand their own methodology for how you design those systems, how you think about work and how you create boundaries and how you link work together and how you design governance. You know, you would never want to say to somebody, hey, you're going to become a car builder. You're going to build your own car. Here's a kit. And think that I never want to drive the car you put together. Why would you want to lead an organization that was haphazardly bolted together with chewing gum and duct tape with a bunch of bolt-ons here or leftovers from last regime or, you know, governance is like wallpaper in a house. It just layers on 
year after year after year. We've got committees running around and boards and councils running around with lives of their own. And you wonder why nothing gets done. So uh, it absolutely is essential that leaders, for, for them to realize the greatest potential of those they lead, to understand how to configure those people and that work in ways that get the best out of them. Well, and one of the highlights that I'm glad that you talked about, because I was going to ask you this, is I've worked with a lot of executives and there is that mindset that they look at that org chart. And I remember having one CEO saying, well, I love moving the pieces around. It's like playing Monopoly for me. And I said, oh, I love, okay. I, I, yeah, I love the intrinsic approach, but there's got to be a design element here. And it's like you said, I, I, again, the analogy of the wallpaper, it's governance and it's paying attention. And I just want to piggyback on that because I love the way you went with this response to this question. How do you think leaders have handled organizational design through unprecedented times that we've experienced the last 19, 20 months? That quote from your client just like was like a knife in my chest. <laughs> Uh, I would say they've handled it poorly because now you've added the element of virtual and remote work. And so you've had some leaders on extreme ends of surveillance and checking up and micromanaging, some leaders not understanding how to now reinstall or recreate cohesion among a set of people who don't not physically work together. And what we've also seen is the narrowing of relationships, right? So now cross-functional partnerships and cross-functional collaborations um, have even weakened further because those are the partnerships I'm least likely to try and proactively reach out to unless I absolutely have to. So um, we actually have a free ebook on our website called Designing, Designing Your Virtual Workplace, where we take our design methodology and apply it to that for, for leaders to free download. Because if you weren't already inclined to think holistically about how you design your organization, you really weren't inclined to do that when everybody went remote. You were just too busy trying to figure out what Zoom buttons did what um, and how to have a meeting and how to deal with Zoom fatigue and how to, how to make sure you, you, you didn't stand up in front of the camera if you're only in your boxers. And that was a good day. You got through the day that way. But we're, we, you know, 18 months has evolved us quite a far away. And now where I see leaders really struggling is how to handle the transition back. The transition out was not that it was easy, but our brains went into pioneer mode. We don't know what we're doing. So we were okay with not knowing what we're doing. We, we got creative in turning our dining rooms into offices and our kitchens into classrooms and our basements into gymnasiums. Um, to be creative, but we were, that was all the thrill of, you know, and the intense uh, adrenaline rush of having to figure something out. The problem now is that our brains are looking for the familiar, right? Our brains are looking for something that we used to know, the shortcuts down the hallways to the kitchen, the shortcuts down the hallway to certain meeting rooms, and suddenly it's all different. We're still social distancing. Now we have some people at home, some people in the office. And so our brains are constantly doing this sort of short outs of, oh, wait, that's not there. And it's stressful. And on top of that, they're really wrestling with the policy issues, which is painful to watch. You know, what's fair? Uh, is it, and, and they're reaching for these one-size-fits-all solutions to, you know, flexibility and work-from-home options and in-office options. Um, and it's not working because uh, you, it's just not, you can't have a I, – I interviewed a bunch of HR executives uh, over the last couple of months for a piece I just did. Uh, for HBR on on retention, right? So everybody's talking about the great resignation. Well, what about the great retention? If 41% of people are thinking about leaving, that means 59% aren't. What about them? And I wanted to understand what was keeping them. And one of the things one of these HRs that had said to me was she's seen her peers, you know, try and impose these 
all-inclusive, one-size-fits-all approaches, and it's damaging people. Um, you can't have, she said, you can't have a, the same policy and approach for a single mother that you do for the high-flying extrovert who's going to start crazy at home. And But to relinquish that much control and allow that much inherent flexibility in design of work just makes leaders anxious. And so they feel like, okay, if I exert control and narrow the options and put boundaries here, that makes it more fair and that will make it more manageable. But neither of those things is actually true. Well, and I love that you touched on the the one size fits all because I don't think we're in a resignation boom. I think it brought the behavior to the forefront. But like you said, it you need that intrinsic apo- approach and that connection with your people to know what's going to work for the single mom versus the extrovert. And I think a little more time has been needed to, to talk to people. And like you said, everybody's zoomed out. So I thank you for being so open and honest and, and kind of sharing what you're seeing. And, and I can concur that I'm seeing the same, unfortunately, but I think we're borderless. We are certainly borderless now with, with COVID and, and even regarding all the different sectors, many executives get together in different sectors and share the same kind of challenges. So it's just a very interesting time. So my second question is, What type of leadership do you feel is required to achieve the value proposition that you can get to if you really fall into a good organizational design? Well, I think there are some certainly some timeless truths about leaders who are accessible and authentic, who don't hide parts of themselves from from people, leaders who understand that your weaknesses are your greatest source of credibility, that your imperfections, which is the whole point of your podcast, really are what set you apart. Your mastery is great. Your mastery may have earned you the job you're in. It may be a source of credibility or a source of people's confidence in you. But if it's the only source of how people know you, then you're actually less trustable. And so your trustworthiness and how you steward your trustworthiness becomes critical, especially when you're going to be configuring change in your organization. Do you know the impact of your own behavior and others? Are you, do you have a regular source or pipeline of feedback? or how others experience in you and how you act upon that feedback, how you solicit it and how you put it in place for what you learn. Um, Your curiosity, how open to others' points of view are you? Um, How much dissent do you invite? Here's a a, a very simple litmus test I tell leaders. If you really wanna know in a very quick second how how well you're leading, simply ask yourself this question. How often do people come into your office to say things that make you uncomfortable? And if that's not happening two or three times a week, your leadership sucks. It's really that simple. First of all, and if you concluded that it's because there isn't anything uncomfortable to say, now you're stupid because every workplace has challenges and problems and issues and they're telling somebody. And so if they're not telling you, you have to wonder where that, where's that information going that you could be find extraordinarily valuable if you had it. Um, your people are unequivocally telling stories about you at dinner at night at their homes. And if you don't know what stories they're telling, you should wonder. I'll tell you what I love about that answer. I just had this conversation two weeks ago and a leader was told by the woman that she reports to that having people in her office all the time means that she's liked, but not respected. And what made her conclude that? Well, we were talking about heart-centered leadership and she basically said to me what you just said. 
I've had people come into my office a couple, three times a week, telling me what they like, what makes them uncomfortable, sharing their ideas, open door policy, because they're just starting to go back with a hybrid workflow. And her superior said, you shouldn't have people coming in your office all the time. If, if they're just coming in because they like you, they won't necessarily respect you. And it just led to such a great conversation about perception and communicating. And she's just trying to be heart-centered as they do this reintegration to a hybrid workflow, which I is- hope she, I hope she ignored the feedback. Oh, 100%. <laughs> she had to share, I, but- I, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was starting to wonder, are you still- you're not suggesting that that was good advice, are you? <laughs> no, not at all. And I'm I'm happy that you were so candid to say, you know, that leadership sucks. And I'm happy to hear hear that come from you because, you know, the resignation boom, again, it's not new. It's just coming to the forefront. But I love what you said. Why are we focusing on the 41% when we got 59% that we're retaining? Why are they staying? Like it's like and, that. And if you look at the, the the latest McKinsey research that came out just just a week and a half ago, it was very telling that what what employers think is the issue and what employees really want are, are really mismatched. Right? Employees are thinking, oh, they want more paying jobs, they want better jobs, they want career advancement, they want more work from home flexibility. Some of those things were certainly true, but the top two things that people said they wanted were to know that they valued and they, they mattered, and a sense of belonging and community. Didn't even hit their employer, employer's radar screen that those were important to them. Top two reasons people were leaving, and which are which are yes, granted a, a slightly more difficult or requires more creativity to create in a hybrid work environment, but not impossible. And the HR executives that I spoke with to write about this, who were in cultures of solidarity, cultures of solidarity are when you marry purpose and belonging. You answer the questions of why, and you answer the questions of who. Absolutely. What these interesting these HR executives told me was that if you didn't have that in place before the pandemic, you probably were caught short. But their cultures and the people I spoke with I, were intentionally people who were not experiencing higher levels of attrition, higher than normal levels of attrition. So they would not they would say that their organizations were not experiencing great resignation drain. Um, and what they said was, if it, their cultures of, of solidarity were already in place before the pandemic. And they said, well, if you if you work hard, Shark, for goodness sake, don't wait another minute to start building that. Don't, you know, don't assume all is lost. You can still start trying very simple things to put in place a culture that people want to be in instead of people want to be from. Absolutely. And and just such great advice. And, and thank you for citing that recent research. My next question is kind of fun, and it has permanent residency on the show. Share with us what imperfections that Ron brings to his heart-centered leadership. Oh, gosh, there, we could fill up a whole show with that. I'm painfully impatient with myself, with others, and that manifests itself in some couple of ways. One, in some my own self-doubt, my own sense of angst about my own accomplishments and achievements when others make mistakes. I, I, the pandemic has been a wonderful laboratory for me, um, especially moving this year and having a gazillion folks in our home to help work on it and you know, to keep reminding myself to show grace, to show grace. It's a pandemic, it's hard. You know, even when people use the pandemic as an excuse when it doesn't apply, to still show grace, to say, you know what? Remember how fortunate and blessed you are to be having this done at all. It's gonna get done when it gets done. And it's been a good, a good provocateur of patience and grace for me, for others. Um, I think I sometimes uh, have a hard time regulating the speed at which I want to well speak, but certainly speed at which I want to draw conclusions, right? To slow myself down and say, just get a little more data, just get a little more data, 
just get a little more data. But I'm I'm so used to clients needing answers quickly or solving problems that are intractable for leaders that I've seen a million times, right? So I can say yeah, my 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 mind can start to go, okay, I know where this move is going. But even if I'm right, you know, try and keep pace with the leader and their ability to absorb where the movie's going, not just sort of hit the fast forward button for them. So those are a couple. Well, I I join you in in being imperfect. It's I think it's like being one of the cool kids when you acknowledge that. So, but thank you for sharing. I think we're all a little bit imperfect. I think we are all impatient. I think that's probably one of the most uh, answers I've heard for that question. And I've, I've interviewed over 130 leaders around the globe. So you're in good company. I can tell you that for sure. I want to ask you one more leadership question before we launch into our rapid fab four. I feel like, and, and I'm being a eternal optimist here. I feel like we are slowly coming out of the tunnel of unprecedented times. If I can frame it like that. Share with us an organizational practice that you feel is required to reinforce organizational intent. And I asked this question based on some of the conversation we've already had. And if you could give us an example of someone without breaching confidentiality, where they really took the approach that we've talked about in organizational design intrinsically thought about what they were going to do as a leader and how are they being intentional about it? So I'll talk about a leader um, who's uh, a story in my, my recent book, to be honest, he inherited a culture that was pretty toxic and the previous regime had tried to change the toxic, the toxic nature of it with a, um, a cosmetic overlay of new values, which of course typically just inflamed people's anger where they feel like you've done something just to fix them. Um, it was a very competitive environment. Um, it was a very undercutting environment and the weapons, the values have become weaponized. They you know, become, oh, he's not living the values. If you wanted to undercut somebody's career, people in marketing were undercutting each other's brand campaign. It was a multi-branded company of CPG products. And so you had a lot of competition between the brands. And they were also in a category of consumer products that was you know, fairly flat and dying. And so they really had not done the work to sort of reinvent themselves competitively to stay relevant to a fresh set of consumers. And he knew that what was going to be required was to really gut the design that allowed rivalry, that allowed toxic culture, that had proliferated, you know, the, the last regime's changes had just proliferated and intensified the problems, not, not remove them. And so, you know, it took him several years of transformative design work. Um, to really rebuild the enterprise, to really rethink the markets they competed in, to really start with the customer in mind and the competitive landscape in mind and work back in. And he put together a design team that, you know, almost all of them watched themselves, design themselves out of jobs because the world as they knew it was going away. And they, and they were okay with that. And in the implementation process, you know, very carefully stood up the new design. Some folks could not make the journey. Um, and he was courageous about that, compassionate, but courageous about that. And it was expensive. It was, you know, it cost hundreds of millions of dollars when all was said and done, both an opportunity loss and also the costs to recreate uh, the enterprise. His famous quote to me was, you know, because, because so much of what had been done was with language. They had tried to just use words to sort of cover up the change. And he said to me, whoever said talk is cheap, never had a leader in an organization that valued it too much. Uh, because the talk was very expensive, as it turned out. 
But he knew the kind of culture he wanted to lead. He knew the kinds of consumers they wanted to attract. He knew the kinds of products they needed to focus on and the kinds of products they needed to take out of the portfolio. Um, and it was, a, it was because they had deferred the maintenance on their enterprise and their product portfolio so long, it was backed into a corner. And so the, the interventions were much sharper, but he was very graceful and compassionate, but courageous for the several years it took to do it. And it's a great example. You know, it makes me think of that cliche. I used to hear my grandma say, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. And then I remember have a university prof reframe it. And he said, Rome wasn't built in a day. Rome was built one day at a time. And it's like you said before, do you want to view the glass half empty or half full? Do we focus on the 49% or the 51? So what a great story. And I love that you talked about the longevity and the years and the amount of money that it took because a lot of leaders do take over from their predecessors. And sometimes they unfortunately land up with a toxic culture. It's not easy to get out of that because they have to develop and, and gain the trust and rapport of all the people. And that's not an easy feat. Great story. We're going to put all the links to your new book and you've written many books. So we're going to, we're going to give everybody a great episode description below so they can uh, visit your website, which is phenomenal. Before I switch to the Fab Four, tell us about the name of your business, Manvalent. Where did that come from and what does it mean to you? So the, nav- the word Navalent is a combination of two words, uh, navigate and valence. Valence is the chemical property I mean, in chemistry when two ke- uh, chemicals or two compounds try to combine to cause a fissure or to cause transformative impact. Uh, so the word literally means navigating the bonds of transformation, uh, which what we see ourselves as doing is helping leaders navigate their relationship to their people, to their, to their future, and the process of transformative work. I love, I love the combination of the words. And again, we will put your website below because you've got your ebook and just so many beautiful resources to help people. So happy to share that. Okay, Ron, I'm going to switch to my fab four. We just, these are just quick answers. We want to know what's on the top of that brilliant mind of yours. First question, tell us something that we don't know about you. I, gosh, I love to ride my bicycle as a way to sort of relax and stretch. I'm uh, an avid tennis player. Um, I have a collection of antique doorknobs and uh, door hardware actually in jars right behind me there. And every day those remind that it's remind me of that we're all to be door openers, right? We're all to be vehicles for other success. The, the quote, a quote from my book, uh, I say that there are 7.3 billion doors on the planet through which joy, hope, and love can enter. And remember, you're one of them. I love that. That's beautiful. Second question, share with us a favorite book. It can't be your own because you've written many that really impacted you as a man or an entrepreneur or of the many hats you wear in any given day. Uh, so David White's book, Crossing the Unknown Sea, is one of my, I try and reread re- it every few years. Uh, extraordinary book. The subtitle was Work as a Pilgrimage of Life. And it really is about our relationship to our calling and our vocations and the things we do in the world that make us unique. Uh, and how we keep a healthy relationship with that work and not get overly consumed by it or too distant from it. Beautiful book. I love that. It's, an, it's another great one. It's it's a question that doesn't get a lot of repetition on the show and it helps readers know what other leaders are reading. So that's a great one I'll have to add to our list. Okay, third question. 
If you had one wish for the world right now, what would it be? Uh, coherence. I'm painfully disheartened by our polarized instincts to other people. You know, we have very reflexive, we, they, tribalistic muscles. And we're, we're fracturing ourselves because we're not even thinking about who we're othering or who, we, who we're being othered by. And it's mindless. And of course, it's just the media makes money off of that. So they will feed it continuously. And we don't even realize how thick our echo chambers have become. And so a greater desire for coherence, um, not the blaming of others for the lack of coherence, but a genuine desire for more coherence and, and the courage to do what it takes for all of us to help create it. I love that. What a great answer. And I, I have to agree with you. It'd be nice if, if sometimes people wouldn't think so systematically and we could just have that grace and that pause and maybe take away from our impatience to, to be better as human beings each day. So a lot of people wanted me to have you on the show. So I am so grateful to you. And I exercised my virtue of patience and excitement to await to interview you, Ron. You are the kind of person that I could sit and chat to all day. You're like an open book of, of knowledge. And I'm excited to share you share you with our listeners because we're now in 45 countries. So I hope lots of new people listen in and will get your books. And thank you for sharing your, your time, your heart and your expertise. And I always close out the show with this last question. So please finish this sentence for me, Ron. Heart-centered leadership is? The ability to make work for others, love make visible. You've been listening to the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart-Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time, and we'll see you again.